James chapter 3 and verse 13. He writes there, who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy, selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Let's pray. God, you give us the privilege to hear your words. You give us privilege to speak your words. Let your words, not my own, be what are implanted in the hearts of those here, and may you be glorified in it. In your name we pray. Amen. My name is Timothy Jones, and I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at Sojourn Midtown, and it's great to be able to share with you again this morning. What we often say here, peace be with you. You ever wonder why we even say that? I mean, why are we saying peace be with you every single week? And I want you to know it's not a sojourn thing. It's actually a Jesus thing. Because if you go back to the book of John, when Jesus appears to his disciples after he has been crucified, he appears alive at dinner with them. He says to them, peace be with you. Now, there's a good reason for him to say, peace be with you, because if somebody shows up at dinner who was dead a few days ago, peace is not the first thing on your mind, is it, okay? So Jesus says to them, peace be with you, and as a result of that, Christians throughout history have said, peace be with you, and also with you. I was reminded how widespread that is a couple, three years ago on the Star Tours ride, a Star Wars themed ride at Hollywood Studios. And so I'm on this ride, and right before they close the doors after giving all the instructions, the, the person that's giving the instructions says, may the force be with you. And so this little kid, maybe three or four years old on the front row, he said, and also with you. And I'm like, you go, kid. That, I like that kid. He's got Star Wars and Jesus, and he's got them both. So this kid has got it made. But I was reminded of just how widespread it was when I heard that. And we repeat these words to remind ourselves and to remind one another of the presence of Jesus among us in this place. But I want to ask you something. What would happen and what would your life look like if this was actually true? If peace was really with you? Well, James tells us what it would look like. He says in verse 18 of this text that if you are a peacemaker who sows in peace, what you will reap, what will come from that is a harvest of righteousness. When peace is really with you, what you do will, will produce a harvest of righteousness. And in the rest of this text, what we see is that this is a righteousness that results in a wisdom that works. Now, when you hear me say righteousness and works at the same time, some of you, especially if you've been in church for a while, you may think, what? 
Righteousness and works don't go together because what it says in the writings of Paul and in the rest of the New Testament is that when I trust Jesus as my Savior, I receive all the righteousness of God. All of that is given to me such that the righteousness of Jesus becomes my righteousness and God can never think anything less of me in his love for me than what he thinks of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness. So how can you be saved? Works and righteousness. But I want us to understand that there are two dimensions of righteousness in the Bible. There are is the vertical dimension of righteousness. And that vertical dimension is that God in Christ imputes to you the, the, the righteousness, the goodness of Jesus whenever you trust in Jesus. But there's also a horizontal dimension of righteousness that results from that first righteousness. And the horizontal dimension of righteousness is that because we have peace with God, because we are secure in him, we are able to seek peace with others and in our communities, in our neighborhoods and in the nations. And that's a reminder to us that righteousness and justice come from the same root. And to live in righteousness is to seek justice and righteousness around us. And it begins with peace and results in a wisdom that works. Now, some people in church history have thought that there is a contradiction here between what James teaches and what Paul teaches. In fact, one person who thought that was named Martin Luther. You may have heard of him. Martin Luther was right on a lot of things, but he was wrong on this. I don't want you to hear what he said, though. Martin Luther said, this epistle of James It is flatly against Paul and all the rest of Scripture in ascribing righteousness to works. It does not once mention the crucifixion, the resurrection, or the spirit of Christ. It is an epistle of straw. Now, he's correct that the resurrection, the crucifixion is not mentioned in this book. It doesn't even mention the gospel in the book of James. And there's some people today who think, you know what? If you talk about the implications of the gospel and the implications of righteousness and the implications of that for justice and righteousness in our world, that you're no longer gospel-centered. But if that's the case, you don't have a problem with justice. You have a problem with James. Because in the book of James, what we find is that it is the gospel all the way through it, but it's about the implications of the gospel for the ways that we live with others. And if you think there's a contradiction, I'm going to tell you a little story from a couple of years ago. Within the same few months, I went twice to the emergency room. One of those times, I had a pain right here. And the doctor said, you need to get your gallbladder taken out. The next time I had a nasty fall with carrying some stuff on my back and I broke my arm in multiple places such that when I went like this, it went like this. It's not supposed to do that. And so I went to there and he said, you need surgery on your arm. Now, what if after that I had said, I'm not going to get this surgery on my arm because the emergency room doctors are just contradicting each other. Because I came here last time and he said, the, he said the problem was my gallbladder. I came to the same place this time and he says it's my arm. They're contradicting each other, but no. Each of those doctors gave a diagnosis based on the brokenness in my life. And that's what we see in Paul and James. Paul is giving a different diagnosis because the place of brokenness in the people to whom Paul was writing was different. 
You see, Paul was writing to people who said that, you know what, the identity markers that mark our community as being right with God are whether we keep the law, the works of the law. And Paul said, no. What makes you, what marks you as the people of God is faith in Jesus Christ. And that's that vertical dimension of righteousness. But the people to whom James is writing, their brokenness is in a very different place. They are believers who have become convinced that their righteousness does not require them to reveal that righteousness in their relationships. And they are forgetting that there is a horizontal component. And so the brokenness of the community was different. The attitude of the people to whom James was writing, as I was writing this sermon, I was listening to Propaganda's Crooked album. And right when I was writing this point, there were some words came out. I was like, that's exactly it. He says, I pray to my Savior with a middle finger to my neighbor, and I create a theology that promotes this behavior. That's exactly the community that James was writing to. That was their attitude, was we don't need to have our theology that, that makes us right with God doesn't need to have an impact in the relationships we have in our community and our world. There's no contradiction between Paul and James. James is emphasizing a righteousness that produces wisdom that works. And this begins, he says in verse 18, when those who seek peace plant seeds of peace. So what would it look like if peace is really with you? Well, the result that we're going to see in our lives should be lives of justice and righteousness lives, the lives that are filled with wisdom that works. And that's why James begins this section by asking a question about wisdom. His first question in this section is, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, to understand what's going on here, why he asks this in this way, we've got to understand the social context that he's writing to, it seems. You see, it seems like that these people are facing trial and testing. He says that in chapter 1. And it's not at a time yet where they're actually being threatened with death or execution for their faith. But they are feeling the pinch of the social pressure of being Christians. They don't fit. They don't fit with the Gentiles who worship the pagan gods and honor the gods of state and empire. But also they're being pressed out from among those who are Jewish because some of them have trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. And they're feeling the pinch and the pressure of following Jesus. And how do they deal with that? Well, what seems to be happening, at least among some of them, is that they figure out that the best way to protect themselves in that context is to build connections with the privileged and the powerful and to distance themselves from those that are poorer and less privileged. And that's why you have in chapter 2. Where in chapter 2 it says, if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit up here in a good place, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves? This gold ring wasn't simply a signpost of wealth, though it was certainly probably that. A gold ring in their culture was a signpost of power and political clout. You had a gold ring, you had some political power, you had some swing in being able to protect and help. It was, so if somebody is coming in like that, whose presence would provide Christians with possible protection and status, they were saying, come up here to the front. Come on up here. 
We want everybody to see that we have connections in high places. It would be almost like, just theoretically suppose with me, that someone with a high office and political power, they were representative of the empire, asked to come and to address a group of their churches. And let's just suppose they're so hungry for recognition that they say, yes, yes, come, because this will show everyone how privileged and powerful we are. So come up here in a good place on the platform before a group of churches and you share your campaigning and you share that and we will cheer even if it turns the name of Jesus into a political tool with no thought for how that affects our brothers and our sisters who aren't part of that system. Now, this was something they struggled with back then. Back then in the first century. We are still talking about the first century, aren't we? Aren't we? What I want us to see is that this temptation is something that faces the church in every age. And when James says, who is wise and understanding, what James is asking is, who is it that you're going to honor? Who is it that you're going to put in a place to instruct and inspire? Who is wise and understanding among you? And the popular answer among some of the people in these churches was, we want those who are powerful, we want those who are popular, we want those who are eloquent, we want those who are intelligent. We want those who will provide those of us who follow Jesus with power and social status. And James says, no, no. What you need to look for are the outward signs of a wisdom that works. And understand that wisdom is not intelligence. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is knowing how to use the knowledge you have. That's what wisdom is. Let's give it to you simply. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Did you know this? A tomato is actually a fruit. It's not a vegetable. Wisdom is knowing don't put it in the fruit salad. It doesn't go with the grapes and the pineapple, okay? That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. You can know something, but do you know what to do with the knowledge you have? And what he says here is if you have wisdom, it's going to be exhibited in meekness or gentleness. Now, meekness is not weakness, okay? There is a place in the body of Christ for weakness. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying meekness or gentleness. And here's how I would define meekness. It is power under control for the sake of a greater goal. It's saying whatever power, whatever privilege I may have, whatever knowledge I I have, I will not use it to run over others or put others down or leverage it to put myself above others. I will not use it for that and recognize Every one of us, every one of you has power somewhere. Maybe over your children, maybe with your coworkers. It may be that you are in a place where you have close friends and family, that your relationship is influential. And you can use that power to crush people. You can use that to exploit people, or you can use that to build people up or confront them in love. How do you use your power? When you're tempted, your child has done something wrong and you're tempted to say the words that won't simply discipline them, but will mock them or degrade them and crush their spirit. What do you say? When you've got in a social gathering and you've got just the right one-liner that's finished to punch somebody that needs to be taken down a little bit. And you know, everybody's gonna laugh. 
And it'll all be great, except you know that what's going on is you positioning yourself in a way of lifting yourself up by putting somebody down. What do you do? Your thumb is hovering over that tweet button that you're going to let the world know, I've got this together and you don't, and I'm going to show you. What do you do? What do you do? What makes somebody wise in God's eyes? It's meekness and gentleness for the good of others and the glory of God. What marks you as wise is not how high others perceive you to be, but how gentle God knows you to be. True wisdom, wisdom that works as the fruit of righteousness, sown in peace and revealed through gentleness. But then James goes on and begins talking about the outward signs of false wisdom. He says bitter zeal or bitter envy and selfish ambition. And this word here is bitter. It's actually picked up from verse 11 where it spoke about in verse 11 the bitter or salty springs that should not characterize the speech of a believer. Ours should be fresh water, not, not something that's salty and bitter. He picks up the same word here in verse 14 and he speaks of bitter zeal or envy. And when we read this, it should cause us to ask, what do the people around me know that I'm really passionate, zealous about? What do they know? And when I get going on that, do they hear bitterness, anger, and unwillingness to listen? Or do they hear gentleness and meekness? This doesn't mean we never speak with boldness. Hear me carefully. There are issues that matter deeply that we speak with clarity and boldness. But even in those, look at Jesus. And Jesus spoke with clarity and boldness, and yet with meekness and gentleness. There are so many topics you can argue about as a Christian, and very few that you should. And those few that you should, approach those with meekness and gentleness. And then he uses the term selfish ambition. This is a word that goes all the way back to Aristotle, a few hundred years earlier, the philosopher. And Aristotle used this word in a very specific way, and it was about building relationships with people for the sake of political advancement. By the time it gets to James, probably what it simply means, we could say using other people to build yourself up. And the followers of Jesus who received this letter, remember, they were tempted to do that. They were tempted to use their relationships with people in power to build themselves up and provide themselves with protection and political advantage. But there are so many other ways that we can live with selfish ambition because it has to do with building relationships based on what I can get out of this. It's thinking about your relationships only in what they can do for you, what you can get out of it. I see that in some young men in our churches. I want to challenge you on this. The young men in our churches, I see often, only will listen to a woman or enter into a friendship with her if there's a potential dating relationship involved. And the rest of the time, you talk around the women, you talk over them, and you ignore them and do not hear their voices. That's selfish ambition. That's a type of selfish ambition where you are saying you have nothing to offer apart from one particular category. Let me tell you, there is wisdom in the sisters in our church that you need. Listen, listen to them, hear what they have to say and affirm them and listen to their wisdom. 
Listen to them. We see it in social media, the selfish ambition all over the place because we live in a world in which we have all learned to be marketers and what we are marketing is ourselves. Post pictures of what we've purchased or what vacation we're on and deep inside when we do that so often, what we are longing for is that surge of serotonin we feel. There's that surge of good feeling when somebody wants what we have or wants where we are. But if we're really honest about that, what we're doing by that is saying to somebody else, come here, sit at my feet. I'm up here. You're down there. Or sometimes we post things just hungry for a compliment of some sort. And if we're really honest and dig down to the darker places of our soul, What's really happening when we do that is we are hearing the echoes of our mind from the past in which somebody has said to us, you'll never be good enough. You'll never be smart enough. You'll never be beautiful enough. You'll never have enough money to be like everybody else. And those things are echoing in our minds and we're posting something to try to numb that darkness, if we're honest. But there will never be enough likes or comments to satisfy your soul. You go away from it empty. And the problem with that is we're not being honest with ourselves or with others. Why not simply say, I am struggling and I need affirmation? And maybe not to the whole internet. Maybe just to a few people who will authentically walk you through that and will point you to Jesus Christ, who even though you are not adequate, you are not enough and you never will be. He is enough. Ask them. I'm not saying you shouldn't post a vacation picture on Instagram. I'm saying think about your heart and think about the hearts of others and recognize that your heart and my heart, they are so deceitful and so dark and just wicked that we can live lives filled with selfish ambition that we never even admit. Maybe think, okay, I'm not on social media, so I'm free on this. I mean, he's just all this. But that's not really the case. I want to encourage you. We bring this to our churches. Where as long as the church fulfills my needs, it's all good. But then when the church stops fulfilling my needs, then I'm something else. I'm looking somewhere else. What does that say? Our relationships are being built on what we can get out of it. Not on who Christ is in so many ways that we do this. And in verse 15, James tells us the true nature and origin of all these things. He says, first, it's earthly, which doesn't sound so bad. It means it comes from the earth instead of the heavens. Then he says, it is unspiritual or soulish, which is simply saying, it's not from the Holy Spirit, it's from you. It's a little worse, but not too bad. And then he says, it's demonic. Wow, that escalated quickly. Earthly, unspiritual exorcist, okay? But what is he saying this for? He's saying that bitter envy and selfish ambition comes from hell. Saying, don't mess around with these things. These are not minor issues. These are not simply minor things that we can say, that's that's not that bad. And I think part of what he's communicating is these are the things that Satan, an angel, that brought him down. And if these things are going to bring an angel down, they'll bring you down too. And they'll bring me down. They'll bring me down. What does it look like when a church is filled with these things? He says it in verse 16. Disorder, despair, every evil deed is there. 
But if a church is full of the wisdom that comes from righteousness and peace, look at what he says in verse 17. Pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit, steady, without any false pretenses. Doesn't that sound beautiful? It really does. Sounds pretty beautiful. Where does it start? What he tells us in verse 18 is it starts by sowing seeds of peace. Now that agricultural image is really important because when you are planting seeds and expecting a harvest, most of what happens is unnoticed, unseen, and it is not glorious. You ever notice that? You plant things and you're waiting for them to grow. It takes a long time. It's not glorious work and much of it happens beneath the surface and you never see it. And then when you least expect it, the harvest finally comes. And here's what often happens in your life and in mine. We strive and strive and strive and strive to build this peace into our lives that results in a wisdom and in a harvest of righteousness. And it seems like nothing is happening. We, we strive to this, and it, and it just can't. We're trying to draw from the power of God's spirit in this. And it seems like nothing is really happening or going on. And then suddenly hit a situation, and you realize, I just responded differently than I would have a month ago, three months ago, a year ago. And when that happens, you're seeing a harvest of righteousness. That's what you're seeing. That beneath the surface where you couldn't see it, there was growth happening the whole time. And you just didn't see it yet. You didn't see it yet. And yet it's bursting forth in the fruit of righteousness. If you pursue this kind of life, don't expect applause. Remember that the one person who perfectly fulfilled this kind of life, the political powers of his day and the religious powers joined together to nail him to a cross. The only one who did this perfectly. And yet, praise God, our hope is not based on gaining power or applause in this world, but our hope is in the wisdom and the power of God. That's where it is. And God's wisdom is not a pattern of life that you pursue, but it's a person who died and returned to life and who gives his righteousness to you. And God's wisdom is ultimately found in Christ. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. God in human flesh, the wisdom that works, working in everyone who has trusted in him. So what should this do in our lives? Let's think of some practical ways that this should change our lives. Three questions I want to ask you. I want to work through them slowly to let you really consider each one of these. Am I known for being a person who plants seeds of peace? Am I known for planting seeds of peace? Think about your conversations over this past week. At some point, flip through your text messages from this past week, Twitter feed. Ask yourself, are the things that I see there pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit, steady, without any false pretense? Is that what you see there? If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you never come to that point of trusting Jesus, you hear those things and you're like, I can't do that. 
There's no way I can do that. And you know what I want to say to you? An encouraging word. You're right. You can't. You can't. None of us can in our own power. The only way that we can pursue these things is by the power of God within us. And so when you hear these things, what it should cause you to do is say, I need Jesus who did these perfectly in my place. And I believe that as I trust Jesus, that his power in me will enable me to pursue these things. But am I known for being a person of peace? Secondly, is God's wisdom and God's glory enough for me? See what's happening when I choose bitter zeal and selfish ambition? I am in essence saying, God, your glory, your wisdom, it is not enough to satisfy me. And I want some of my own. Think about it. You're in that conversation. You just feel really inadequate because the person you're with has so much more than you do in some area or another. And you want to exaggerate what you've done. What we're saying in that is, God, your wisdom, your glory, it's not enough for me. In that situation where you really just want to put somebody down and you just want to tear them apart, put them down, talk about them in a way that tears them down, what are you saying? God's glory, God's wisdom is not enough for me. I'm broken and I never say so. And I come to church week by week and say, I've got it all together. When I know deep inside, I don't because I want to stay in a position of being able to be the strong, the powerful one in our relationships. When we do that, we're saying God's glory and God's wisdom are not enough. When I place myself above somebody who has less than I do, God's glory, God's wisdom are not enough. But here's the truth. God's glory and God's wisdom are enough. They are sufficient to satisfy. They are sufficient to satisfy. When you are in those situations, say to yourself, God's glory and God's wisdom, it is enough. It is enough. I don't have to prove myself right. I don't have to be able to prove myself because God has already proven everything through the cross and the empty tomb through Christ. And I am free to sow seeds of peace because of that. And last of all, who seems wise and worthwhile in my eyes? Who do I see as wise? Remember, God's wisdom isn't based on your power. It's not based on what you know or what you're able to do. It's based on the God who knows you and how that transforms you. Here's what that means practically. The child with special needs, they may be more wise in God's eyes than you or me with all of our experiences or degrees will ever be. They may be wiser in God's eyes. That maintenance worker, that your place of work that you walk by and you completely ignore because you don't think they have anything to offer, they may be wiser in God's eyes than you will ever dream of being. God's kingdom is a kingdom upside down where what he sees as wise is not what the world sees as wise. It's always been that way in Christianity. All the way back in second century, there was a guy named Celsus who wrote this scathing critique, anti-Christian, in the second century. And one of his primary arguments is this argument. If there are any ignorant or unintelligent or uninstructed people, Christians say, let them come. And you know what? He's not wrong. We say, come, 
All who will come to Christ, all who will submit their lives to him, come, come. What would happen if we stopped looking at people through the lens of false wisdom that looks for power and social position? What would it look like? I think we get a hint of it in a, the words of a monk. I don't agree with everything this individual says, and I, I don't even know what he really saw. But the words here are beautiful, and they strike me as true. He was walking through Louisville, Thomas Merton. And it says, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the sense that the realization that I loved all these people. Now I realize what we all are. If only everybody could realize this, but there is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. He's saying every single one of them is glorious and beautiful. Every one of them. He says there's no way to let them know that. But actually, I think there kind of is a way to let them know that. And it starts with the peace of Christ among us that then treats people in a different way with meekness and gentleness and grace. And that's when they begin to see that they are shining like the sun. And it starts when we sow seeds of peace. And so peace be with you.